The state of Mississippi is in the midst of a major scandal where six have been arrested for misusing federal welfare funds. The scandal is often associated with Brett Favre, as it should be, I guess, but it's a lot bigger than just Brett Favre. Right now, we have state and federal agencies investigating um, what has happened to the federal welfare funds, what is criminal, what needs to be recovered, who needs to recover it, and, and where it needs to go. Because federal dollars that have been targeted for poor people in Mississippi have been wantonly and openly abused for quite some time. Now, this investigation could reveal more about Mr. Farr, but it will also or may also include um, what we should know about Governor Phil Bryant's activities, current Governor Tate Reeves, um, what he has or has not done uh, now as governor and when he was lieutenant governor, people like former football star Marcus Dupree, the USM Athletic Foundation, and many of Mississippi's politically well-connected and many of its prominent state, not prominent non-for-profits could all be involved in this. This is a big scandal. I don't think this story would be known at all, let alone investigated, if it were not for the reporting of this week's guest, Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today. She has doggedly and consistently reported on this issue and made it plain for not only the citizens of Mississippi, but I think all Americans should be concerned about this because this is federal tax dollars that are being abused by the state and state officials that should be going towards poor people in the poorest state. So with all of the things of where are my tax dollars and what is it used for? This is a place where you should be concerned and you should be concerned about how poor people are being taken advantage of. I will say this to the citizens of Mississippi. There are statewide elections this year, this year in 2023, governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, state auditor, the state house, state senate, public service commissioner, insurance commissioner, all of the statewide offices are up for election this year. Use your voice as a check on abuse of power. Use your voice to bring accountability to the state and to serve poor people by voting and showing up at the ballot box. Organize and vote. As James Brown says, get up, get into it, and get involved. I will also say continue to read, share, and discuss Anna Wolf's reporting at Mississippi Today. There's a great article about the uh, healthcare misspending uh, in the state today um, on April 6th is when I'm recording this. So look at that article as well. As I always say, a podcast cannot replace study or being informed but I'll be damned if the parlay in all blue is not a great place to start. We appreciate you and uh, continue to support us, like, share, and uh, discuss, and most of all, act 
and welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Anna Wolf, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yes, uh, you have been doing just wonderful, wonderful work and important work in your reporting on Mississippi's welfare scandal, the TANF scandal. And so I am very appreciative of that, of, of your reporting, and so glad that you're, you're doing it. And um, thank you for, for joining us. I do want to start this episode with sort of just what are the nuts and bolts of the scandal? What is it for people who haven't, who aren't, aren't aware of it? What, what is the scandal? Sure. So um, the arrests that sort of kicked everything off with this scandal occurred in the um, in February of 2020. So more than three years ago now. Um, mm-hmm. And they were arrested for embezzling $4 million from the state's welfare program. Bay is the former director of the agency, and this was a um, governor-appointed director of the Department of Human Services, appointed by Phil Bryant. Um, he's a guy named John Davis, and he was pushing out welfare money to these two nonprofits to essentially run this statewide um, anti-poverty initiative that was supposed to be addressing the family as a whole, holistically looking at the needs of families and you know, workforce development, parenting classes, you know, pregnancy prevention, all of these things that conservatives sort of put under the bucket of, you know, anti-poverty measures. And the nonprofits were essentially corrupted and were just pushing out the dollars to political cronies and their friends and family. And, you know, it ended up being uh, around $80 million that was misspent here, auditors found misspent, meaning spent in a way that is in violation of the federal regulations of this program. It's a very uh, complex case in terms of like what kind of spending was illegal versus what was just unallowed on the federal level um, versus payments that you and I would look at and say are just flat out wrong, but are perfectly legal because of how lax this federal program is and the restrictions around it. Yeah, I I definitely want to to get into that because as I was preparing for our conversation, one of the things that I, I cannot grasp just yet is how much of this is legal and uh but at the same time, like you said, things that ordinary people or the citizens of Mississippi I, I would assume would be shocked that, you know, tax dollars, government dollars, dollars that are intended for poor for the poor are going to other things. I do want to to get into that. You you mentioned uh, uh, some of the people involved. You mentioned former head of the state agency. Right now, who's been arrested at least or, or criminally charged? So the six people who were arrested in 2020 were John Davis, uh, three people from one of the nonprofits, the nonprofit founder, Nancy New, her son and their accountant, and then a, a former professional wrestler who was working as an employee of the state agency and of the nonprofit was arrested for um, taking money through a government contract under the welfare program um, for services that he was not conducting because he was actually in rehab at the time. And then another agency employee and, and John Davis, of course. And 
So that was the state charges. And then after the folks were arrested on, on these state charges, the information was turned over to the federal authorities and they started their investigation. And since that has occurred, John Davis, Nancy knew her son and the wrestler have been charged federally and have all pleaded guilty. And um, the nonprofit founder from the other nonprofit that I mentioned has also been charged federally and pleaded guilty recently. So those that's the that's the criminal side. And then you've got the civil suit where the Department of Human Services is trying to claw back money from people who they say received it improperly, mostly from the nonprofits. And that is, you know, several dozen people. But um, where you've heard of Brett Favre's involvement yeah. in this story and the wrestlers and the other athletes um, who have been sort of ensnared in this are being charged civilly through that civil litigation from the Department of Human Services. Yeah. And, and so um, I'm glad you you mentioned Brett Favre's name in this. And, and I have like three or four different sets of emotions when his name is attached to this. One is good because, you know, he is a celebrity and a Hall of Fame football player and people, you know, recognize him and therefore are are interested in the story. But I think the story, again, this really, to me, talks about a lot of way the way that things were being run, particularly this agency and the way dollars were distributed uh, legally or illegally or just plain old waste under Governor Phil Bryant. Where where does he stand in this in terms of charges, accountability, investigations, those kinds of things? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that that's the question that most of the reporters who were on the story from the beginning had at the very beginning. It was like, well, now you've got this welfare director who's facing charges in, you know, what auditors are calling the largest public fraud scheme in state history. But that guy was appointed by the governor and took his orders from the governor. It's very hard for anyone who works in government, anyone who knows how this works, to believe that this welfare director was completely going rogue and that the governor wasn't aware of what he was doing under his watch. So I think those were the questions that we had at the very beginning. And we found pretty early on when we realized Brett Favre's involvement, because one of the companies that was named in the initial indictments in state court that received stolen welfare money is this company called Prevacus, which was developing a, a drug to treat concussions. And this was a company that Favre was investing in and um, heavily promoting and going to the state, trying to find support at the state level from. And so it was not a hard leap to to go from Prevacus being named in the indictments to looking at Brett Favre's involvement. And as soon as we started started looking at communication around Brett Favre and this pharmaceutical company, we found that Phil Bryant was also involved in those conversations. He was encouraging for the welfare director to meet with Favre, according to you know the calendar invites that we found. But after that, it kind of it kind of faded away because there wasn't any more documentation. There wasn't any more evidence to show what Phil Bryant's role really was in the direction of the welfare money that was being spent out of this department. So we kept on it. And that's kind of where we had our sights set still for two years following the arrests. And we finally came across the, you know, the huge cache of text messages that really showed how Phil Bryant was helping Favre um, get connected with these people and you know, setting up meetings and having fundraisers. And then, you know, it turns out that two days later, 
Farb's meeting with Nancy New and welfare money starts flowing to this company. And you've got Farb texting the governor when he receives the money. And then you've got Farb asking the governor to accept stock in the company, you know, come on board with ownership. And he says he cannot take, you know, a company package until he leaves office. And then he leaves office and he's conversating with the owner of this company about taking stock. And all of that culminated in um, the series that we published last year that really kind of broke everything wide open in terms of the governor's involvement in this scandal. Yeah. And so we have Phil Bryant, who's the governor, Brett Favre. You mentioned the other Nancy New and her son and, and heads of other agencies. But there's also um, Marcus Dupree, who's a fair, um, a famous athlete there. A lot of this also, there's a connection between sort of the, the building of the volleyball stadium with the USM Athletic Foundation and Brett Favre and Nancy New. There's a lot of mixing there. And with that, how are people, Mississippians, day-to-day Mississippians thinking about this? Are they thinking about this as just people sort of doing things improperly and just sort of just kind of this is the way things are done and not that big a deal? Or are people thinking about it criminally? Or or how, how are people reacting to this in the state? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's kind of a combination because I do think there is a sentiment that it's not that surprising considering what we know about the people who run the state and their attitudes about public assistance programs. You know, they don't want these programs to, you know, personally benefit people in poverty. They don't want the programs really to exist for people in poverty. But um, as we've seen, they're comfortable tapping into those programs and resources for themselves and their family and friends. So I think that a lot of people feel that that's the way things are. But I do think that this story has also appalled people and just how brazen they were. And I do think that the general population that's following the story probably is looking at, you know, thinking that criminal charges are appropriate for the people who are involved in steering the money this way. I mean, several people have already pled guilty to federal charges and are going to be facing time in prison. So I think that there's the idea that if those people are going to be held accountable, then everyone involved should be held accountable. It's interesting when you said, you know, the difference between, you know, maybe just um, a, a stupid use of welfare money versus an illegal use. And I mean, to bring it back to the volleyball stadium, which is one of the most egregious purchases in this scandal and something that has definitely captured the the audience in this story. I mean, most people who, you know, they might not know the full story, but they know about the volleyball stadium and right. how Brett Favre was lobbying officials to put welfare money into that project. Lawyers looked at that project, right? I mean, there were lawyers at DHS who were crafting the way to make that happen. They were skirting around guidelines, federal guidelines on, um, you know, and prohibition on certain kinds of spending in order to get creative so that they could make that happen in a like, quote unquote, legal way. Now we're finding out that that was not in fact legal and it wasn't okay what they did. Um, according to prosecutors, that constituted fraud, but from their perspective, they thought they were doing it legally. And that is, I think, so indicative of the guidelines in the program in the first place. And that's a national issue, right? I mean, this is a federal program. So I think it is interesting that 
you know, basically there's these different interpretations on what is like acceptable and not. And that's kind of the battle that we're in right now with the people who perpetuated this saying that they thought that they were doing it within the guidelines. Yeah. And so to that end, so this is all out of the TANF, Temporary Aid for Needy Families Fund that comes from the federal government. And that's just one form of of welfare, given the states or or certainly the the political apparatus, uh, the conservative political apparatus that runs the state and has always run the state. That's just one 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 source of funds that comes from the federal government that is being misused. Have you run across other sources? I don't know, you know, food stamps. Of course. I mean, we've sort of had to corral this story around TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, because you kind of have to grab onto something, right? And this is probably the program that has the least restrictions and is most well known for being a slush fund in states that want to use it that way. But it is, you know, not even close to the only program that has been hijacked. Even in some of the criminal charges, it's not all TANF money that we're talking about. There is some food assistance money that was um, allegedly stolen, you know, within this scandal. There's childcare money that has been really heavily in question. That child care development fund is the program that provides vouchers to low income working parents so that they can send their kids to child care. And that is also a block grant, um, similarly to TANF. Um, the block grant structure is what allows for the money to come into the state. And the state has so much say over how that money is administered and who gets to tap into it um, as far as like eligibility requirements for the funds for the assistance. Um, Medicaid, right? I mean, we've got billions of, of contracts in Medicaid. I mean, our Medicaid agency has essentially in a big way been privatized. And so, you know, are we confident that the accountability is there for those private companies who are getting all that money to administer healthcare to poor individuals? I mean, child support enforcement has been entirely privatized. I mean, I could go on and on, right? And these are all programs that impact a population of people in Mississippi that is disenfranchised and does not have the power to, you know, hold officials accountable to them. You know, they've just been sort of forgotten and ignored because of their lack of like political capital. Yeah, yeah. And I I definitely want to come back and dig on that uh, a little more in terms of accountability, because that that's just that's just wild to me that these large pools of money have relatively little oversight. And what what's accountable to the public is is seems really lax. But I want to dig on something because we've done a couple of shows here recently where we've been in the state and a big piece of rhetoric that led to the shootings uh, that happened at Jackson State College in 1970 was around law and order. A lot of what fueled Mississippi Sovereignty Commission and the Citizens Council and other things was around states' rights and and sort of um, and and really just this sort of massive resistance to civil rights in the 60s. It seems like with this scandal the rhetoric of 
family values and fatherhood has and, and sort of that bootstrapping and all of that has sort of, to me, has this cultural cloak over why it's okay to misuse these funds. Am I, am I right about that and seeing that? Totally correct. Yes. You know, that was the justification that they gave for most of the spending that was that you and I can look at and say was was not helpful, not effective in drawing people out of poverty. It was, you know, fatherhood initiatives and two parent family formation. I mean, this is basically giving millions of dollars to people to preach and speak to you know, people living in poverty who they have no idea what they're going through. They have no context for what a family living in poverty needs or, you know, what is going to be most effective for them in coming out of poverty. You know, the conversation has devolved so much into just, should we use the money for cash assistance versus should we use the money for other types of programs that can, you know, be effective in interrupting generational poverty? Like, let's talk about both for sure. I'm not advocating that, you know, every dollar should be spent on cash. There are other things that we can be doing, but let's have a conversation about what's actually effective because paying a professional wrestler a million dollars to get up on stage and give a motivational speech is not an effective anti-poverty program. And I think that there's also the concept of deservingness here too. So, you know, the people who are applying for welfare assistance are not deemed deserving by the state. I mean, it's just, it's just clear through the policies that the, the state has decided sort of who is deserving and who is not. And people who, on the flip side, people who have money and, you know, power are deserving simply because they have it, it seems, um, is the, is the, determination there. So they're perfectly comfortable giving taxpayer dollars to people who are already wealthy because the fact that they have something in the first place means to them that, that they're worthy of it. And, um, and that's how you just see this, like, you know, the poor keep getting poorer, rich keep getting richer. I mean, it's just such a classic tale, I think. Yeah. So, um, and this this scandal, it, the arrests were made in February of 2020. But how long has this scandal been going on? So if you're talking about a scandal of, um, you know, illegal activity, fraud, you know, wire fraud, um, embezzlement, these things that people have been charged with criminally, like I, I, I couldn't say because, you know, we only know what charges prosecutors have filed against people. But the scandal of using taxpayer money that's specifically designed to draw people out of poverty on things that do not help people in poverty has been going on forever, certainly since the beginning of the program in the 90s, when it changed from an entitlement before it was called the aid to families with dependent children. And when it changed to TANF in 96, you know, that's when the the roles of people being helped just plummeted and the money was, you know, diverted to whatever pet projects the governors wanted to see funded. When you say the the roles uh, plummeted, when it was an entitlement program versus now with TANF and something that's state run, what sort of the the drop between 
what what poor people in Mississippi were receiving in the 90s in terms of payments or support payments from the government to to now. And I don't necessarily mean now today, but just sort of averages. Sure. So there were about 30,000 adults on the program in the 90s when it started. And there are about 200 adults on the program today, if that gives you any indication. The amount in 1999 of the welfare check was $170 for a family of three. That amount did not change until 2021 after the scandal broke. It was $170 a month for a family of three for two decades. Um, so, and you know, of course, with inflation, it was less and less valuable uh, over time, which I think is, it was sort of a, a cycle because as the program became more obsolete, just with the amount of money being so low and people kind of forgetting about the program or it's so hard to get on it and you have to, you know, go through so many roadblocks that it's just kind of not worth it. Fewer people were applying for it. And that sort of, you know, just added to like this program being kind of forgotten and therefore very ripe for this kind of abuse. Yeah. Okay. And so that is, that's, that's a staggering uh, drop off or sort of numbers. How much money on average does the, um, does the state of Mississippi get for TANF in a year? That's the other thing is that because it's a block grant and that dollar amount hasn't changed since the nineties, it's still, about $90 million a year that Mississippi gets through this program every year. It's $86.5 million. Okay. All right. And so of that $86.5, what portion of that is actually going to poor people? Through the cash welfare check, yep. you mean? Yes, yes. About 5%. About 5%. Okay. So it's about 5 And that's 5- true today as well. Okay. So about 5%, and then it, then that means the other 95% is going to state agencies or not-for-profits? Is that? So I would say that um, of the money that's being spent right now, and we're not even spending all of it, and that's a problem nationally, too, that states are just piling up this huge, you know, unobligated balance of unspent funds. But um, I would say that about of the rest that's spent on things other than cash assistance, I would say about half are spent on grants on grants to nonprofits or other kinds of organizations that do, you know, any kind of work that fits into TANF guidelines, which would be like workforce development, job training, you know, work supports, childcare, parenting classes, after school programs, and and I would say more heavily, you know, geared towards the parent parenthood classes and, and after school programs than on the workforce side, which is kind of ironic because the TANF program is, it's literally called the TANF work program. It is a, a program that's supposed to prioritize getting people jobs and getting people to work. And that has not been what the state has prioritized the money on. Um, and then the, the, the second half I would say is, is going to plug budget holes at the um, Department of Child Protection Services, which is the Child Welfare Agency. So essentially that means that anywhere from 30 to $35 million in TANF right now each year is being spent on investigating families for child abuse. So, you know, you said this, the, the work I was thinking um, when I was when I was a younger man, I'm still quite young. 
the the welfare to work uh, sort of rhetoric of the in the Clinton years in the nineties. So okay, so about five percent is going to poor, and the other ninety five percent is going between not for profits doing fatherhood and sort of should be doing workforce development and other things going to to help support other poor initiatives or, or, or things that are aimed at helping poor citizens. How much of that is of the 95% is, is what someone would say is questionable spending? I'm not talking about like the $4 million where that was misspent illegally where people were charged. I'm not even talking about the volleyball stadium. I'm just saying just just come on now, give me a break. How much is how much of this is just waste? Yeah, I really I struggle to to answer that. I'll say like during the years of the scandal, you know, at the height of the scandal, almost all of the money that the nonprofits were spending was indicative of waste, fraud and abuse according to auditors. So, and and part of that is because of the lack of record keeping, right? So auditors can't determine if a purchase is like proper or not, if they're not properly documenting it and they're not doing any kind of eligibility determination to make sure that the people who are being served by the programs that they're putting on are actually needy people, right? And so there has been a shift at the agency to make sure that that's being done now. I think that there has been, you know, some some rules changed so that that's not that money is not just flying out of the door anymore. But I it's it's still kind of your question is interesting because they're still not doing any kind of outcome reporting or right. you know determination of effectiveness. So you know to me the only way that the spending is not wasteful is if you can show me where someone escaped poverty because of what you did with the money and they can't do that. So they have not done that. So with uh, to bring it back to the top with Marcus Dupree's equestrian farm are, are, can we point to, you know, poor people who've gone there and now, you know, they, um, you know, are really doing well or with the volleyball stadium. I, I know there was had to be some justification around serving the community there. Has there been anything that you can see? And I think poverty is your beat. Is is there anything that you can see from those projects that went to help? You? No. OK. All right. And when I think of government dollars and you mentioned sort of states uh, a lot of states not using the money. I live in Georgia and, you know, the governor ran on, you know, we have a surplus. I know Mississippi has a surplus. Also, I know that Governor Rees returned, I think, $130 in COVID relief money. I know that that you're forgoing Medicaid, right? And the rural hospitals closing. And I want to say at one point, Mississippi had really high medical debt, individual medical debt for citizens or what have you. So you're talking about a state uh, with poor people and there's money coming into the state or money being unspent. And how do politicians sort of justify having a really poor state and then not using funds that are aimed at the poor? I'm not even talking about the criminal stuff now. I'm just talking about what should be good and wholesome use for poor people? 
Yeah, I mean, they do justify it. They have a line and that is, you know, uh, limiting the federal debt, um, you know, morally wow. that taking money from the federal government is not a conservative principle. And so it's not something that they're going to be for, no matter the benefit to the people um, that they are supposed to be representing. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's get a job. If you want health care, get a job. If you want health insurance, get a job. You know, never mind that 40% of jobs in the private sector in Mississippi do not offer health insurance and therefore would be unaffordable for anybody, you know, making what, $9 an hour. They do justify it. You know, whether that's something that you're going to be able to receive is another question. Right. Or, or, or think that that's actually the answer that, you know, that that's actually what they believe. I'm not sure. So. How did any of this then play into the, is the state legislature still in session or? It just ended last week. Okay. So just ended last week. And then there's statewide elections coming up. Is that in 23, I want to say? Yep. And so how is this scandal and thinking about resources for the poor, how did it play into anything with the state legislature's session that just completed? And how is any of that playing into the political rhetoric for the state elections coming up? You know, I think that the civil suit that DHS has brought against all of these individuals and companies has given the legislature a kind of out for doing anything itself. So it has not been very proactive in putting any policies in place to ensure that the money is spent more wisely. They've done things like, I mean, the, the agency itself has put in better controls in place, but that doesn't mean that the money is being spent in ways that are effective, like we talked about. So the legislature has essentially done nothing to to change that, to to, to require the department to be looking at effectiveness with the, the spending of these dollars. Democratic lawmakers have held hearings to talk about the TANF issues and, and talk about solutions but they don't hold any power in the legislature. And so they have not been able to, you know, get any bills even like close to being looked at. I will say that we expanded postpartum Medicaid or we, we passed postpartum Medicaid extension so that women who have children are covered now for a year instead of just 60 days after they give birth. And I mean, that was like a pretty big uphill battle for, for that to be passed. And so I just want to make note of that. And then as far as the election goes this year, the Democratic candidate for governor, Brandon Presley, has really used the welfare scandal as a, a, you know, a campaign talking point, as I'm sure, you know, most people would say was smart of him. I do think that it's an issue that voters are, are thinking about, you know, as they consider which candidates to put their support behind. You know, Brandon Presley, I think he has some progressive policies that, you know, people who kind of care about what's going on with the low income population would be in favor of. But, you know, I think more so with that, it's pointing at Tate Reeves and saying, this guy was lieutenant governor when all this was occurring. You know, what does that say? And he did have you know, some conversations with some of the people involved in this scandal that raised questions about, you know, whether he was um, complicit in what happened as well. So it's more of a, you know, an attack on Tate Reeves than, than anything else, I would say. But I do think that people are looking at that as a campaign issue. 
Yeah, um, the auditor who brought charges, uh, those were state charges of the initial arrest in February 2020, correct? And it's Shad White is mm-hmm. um, the state auditor. Phil Bryant was the governor during the scandal and Tate Reeves, the current governor. They're all Republicans and have firm control over the state, all of the state offices, just all of them, really. I wouldn't have expected... And I looked at sort of um, Chad White, some of his campaign, his website and things that he was saying when he's campaigning during, I guess it would have been four years ago when he became the state auditor. I would not have expected him to be investigating and charging politically connected people in the state, nor bringing a lot of light, negative light to past governor Phil Bryant. So how are how are people getting along and what's the political fallout from this? That's a really good question. Shad White was actually Phil Bryant's campaign manager at one point before he was state auditor and he was appointed to his position of state auditor to fill a vacancy by Phil Bryant. I don't think that he thought when he was at the early stages or even the arrest stages of his investigation that it would touch Phil Bryant. I don't think he was thinking that far ahead. I think that it's pretty obvious to anyone who's been watching that, in fact, he did what he could to steer attention away from Phil Bryant by calling him the whistleblower of the case, saying that he was the one who brought the information forward that launched the investigation, when really that was just a very small piece of of suspected fraud that he brought forward. So yeah, he's an interesting kind of character in the story. And I think that We'll probably learn more about that and about how he handled the initial stages of the investigation, you know, in the future. I think that it's something that we're definitely looking at, you know, as we explore Phil Bryant's role, you kind of have to think about, well, what what did Shad White have to do with making it so that Phil Bryant wasn't held accountable up to this point, right? I mean, it's been two years before any of the text messages that indicated his involvement were even made public, even though Shad had possession of them. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. but I mean, I don't know if there's a specific answer, but I, I was just wondering just how I'm trying to just get a sense of how this may play out. And it's probably still too early. And I mean, the federal charges just now they're coming. So I, I, it's it, this is in my the way I read it is I scandal that's ongoing. It's not like we're at the end of it and can wrap a bow on it. So so that, that was helpful. Um, listen, TANF, welfare, uh, auditing, criminal charges, civil charges, all of those are uh, poor people, poverty. All of those are race neutral terms. And your beat is the poverty beat. And certainly class and race can be found in the same place there. But we are talking about the state of Mississippi. How does race play into this in terms of allowing it to happen, being okay with it happening, and how people are reacting to it? Absolutely. Because, you know, I think that people think of them as synonymous, even though they're not. Um, And I think that the best piece of evidence for the impact that this has on how welfare is administered in this country is the fact that across the country, the percentage of a state's black population is 
it, it correlates with how sort of punitive and um, not generous the public safety net is. So in states with high white populations, that's where you have the most generous safety net policies. And, you know, in terms of how people can get on it and, you know, who qualifies for it and how much, you know, support they get. Whereas in Mississippi, you've got the most meager public assistance of any state and the highest black population. I mean, what more do you have to say there? But certainly Mississippi's history, you know, cannot be separated from this story and sort of racialized attitudes around who public recipients are and how and their, and their deservingness, right? Um, it's kind of a theme that I keep coming back to is rooted in the state's racism and the racism of its elected officials. You know, if you just go back to the 80s, you know, right leading up to welfare reform in the 90s, you know, people didn't have a problem with providing taxpayer funded support to mothers in, you know, the early 1900s. It wasn't until Black folks started accessing the programs and started, you know, receiving support that our politicians started railing against these programs and saying that they, you know, trap people in poverty and created dependence on the government and all of these things. So you can't really separate the two. No, you, you, you can't. And and listen, I tell people um, that y- you have to think about that the first major or some major moments in civil rights occur in Montgomery, sort of the bus boycott, and also in Baton Rouge, you're talking about uh, medium-sized Southern cities. And sort of public transportation was something that uh, citizens enjoyed and, and, and white citizens enjoyed. And now, uh, once Black people started really having equal access to it, sort of after Rosa Parks and the and the Montgomery bus boycotts or what have you, public transportation across the South right now is a non-starter. Even in, I live in Atlanta and we're a huge city and we've got the worst traffic. Public transportation funding is like a non-starter. I tell people that, Everything with this TANF scandal and being misspent, you can go back to the Freedmen's Bank after Reconstruction and see how it was pilfered, the money taken out and spent for railroad investments and things that didn't have anything to do with the formerly enslaved. So uh, I appreciate you on that. What drew you to the poverty beat? Why, Why did you want to report on that? Well, and just to touch on what you just said again, like, I mean, think about public pools too, right? Yeah. Like we don't have them anymore. And yeah. I think the the point is that we all suffer. And I just want to make that point because, you know, I, I hope that like maybe when people start to realize that when you systematically disadvantage a certain population, just because you're not part of that population doesn't mean you don't suffer from it where we all are worse off. How did I get on the poverty beat? I was reporting on healthcare at the Clarion Ledger prior to taking this job at Mississippi Today. And I liked that beat. I liked reporting on healthcare, but I kept finding that I really just wanted to report on the economic situation that people were dealing with. So most of the time, you know, reporting on health outcomes that people were having was like totally overlapped with poverty. And I sort of identified, and I think there's lots of ways to think about this, but for me, it's just pretty obvious that poverty is the underlying root cause of so many of the health, but also just social and, and other issues that people are dealing with. So 
And there hadn't been someone reporting on it. There hadn't been a, you know, specific poverty beat or a poverty reporter in in Mississippi that I'm really aware of, like at the Clarion Ledger or any other paper. So I went over to Mississippi today and I, I pitched them on hiring me to cover poverty. And the first thing that I wanted to do in that beat was to really dig into public assistance programs and really dig into everything that we're talking about right now. Because if you're asking, why is there so much poverty? Why is there so much poverty in America? But especially like, why is Mississippi the most impoverished state in the nation? Um, looking at what the state does in its anti-poverty programs is a great place to start, right? TANF is the program that the state has the most flexibility uh, to spend how they wish. So I think it's a great like litmus test or, or a great just illustration of the state's attitudes towards people in poverty. And with in, in covering the, the poverty beat and sort of actually for me looking at this story, one thing that's occurred to me, or I have a question for you. We talk a lot about food deserts, right? That's a, that's a common term. Do we have news deserts? Absolutely. I think that that was um, part of the reason for Mississippi Today's creation in 2016 um, Mm. with sort of how Gannett was pulling resources out of the Clarion Ledger, which is the, you know, legacy statewide newspaper, but certainly too at the local, at the like hyper local level, that's where it gets really concerning because we used to have, you know, community papers everywhere. And that's where not just even like, the dissemination of information that people need to be informed and make good decisions and decide who they want to vote for and that kind of thing. But also just in terms of community connection, right. And like feeling like, you know, your neighbors and that, you know, what people in your community are up to. I mean, I think that social media obviously is taking care of that to some degree, but yeah, we absolutely have news deserts. And that's where like, (laughs) with a story like this, I'm not sure that if I hadn't gotten hired at Mississippi Today, that any of this would be being discussed right yeah. now. And now, listen, I think so when I was, for me, if you had not been doing this, if you had not been asking and digging and, and what have you, this story would not exist. It, it, it just wouldn't. And when I think about Georgia, I'm originally a Chicagoan. And so there, there are things that I can point to in Illinois or city government in Chicago or things that happen in are happening right now in Georgia that just aren't being followed up on. You you hear a trickle or what have you. And and so that sort of, I, I will put in a plug and I am not a journalist and I don't have any stock in any uh, news organization, but uh, for everybody who's listening, you know, support uh, local journalism, whether it's a subscription or for the nonprofit or what have you, because I, I do know as having worked for a media company is that investigative journalism is expensive. It's, it's mm-hmm. I mean, it, it takes time to to get to a story. Back to the lack of accountability, real quick, as we are beginning to to get towards the end. Voting should be a check. We have the elections in Mississippi coming up in twenty twenty three, right? So you have a situation where you have. million coming into the state that could help poor people and help reduce poverty. You have things like expanding Medicaid that, in my opinion, would help rural hospitals. And that helps black people, white people. That helps people uh, in the state uh, from, you know, to be able to be served uh, and certainly help 
you know, with health health outcomes. Voting should be a check in this. Are you sensing that there will be a larger turnout or or how are people gearing up to fight back against this politically? I want to say that I think that this story has bridged gaps between people in Mississippi. I think that, you know, whereas like writing about issues related to the low income population might be just perceived as some liberal progressive, you know, cause that's not what it means to me. That's not how I see it. And I think that a lot of conservative Mississippians have really responded to the story. They appreciate the information. They appreciate the, what was done wrong here. Even if they have conservative, you know, viewpoints or, you know, viewpoints on public assistance programs that are like, we shouldn't have them or we shouldn't have robust, a robust social safety net. So, I think that that has bridged um, some political divides for sure in the state where like almost anyone can get behind this story, you know, and get behind the exposing of these, these wrongs, whether they're going to change their voting practices is another question. And I, I don't know the answer to that. We're so gerrymandered in Mississippi too, that, you know, it's, we, we have a one party state. We're a Republican state. So you know, I, I don't know the answer to like if this story is going to create a bigger turnout. You know, I, I hope that people feel compelled by it. Having said that, if there was a person, group, organization, neighborhood, community that you've come across during your reporting on this story and poverty in general, that if the money had gone to poor people would have changed. Is there a family person or there think people that you can think of that really could have used this and it would have, they would have a different outcome? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, yes, we could probably talk for the rest of the day about those folks and those families and those communities. But when I went down to Hattiesburg to report on the volleyball stadium, I actually, we, we found that first and broke that story really early on, right after the arrests. We found out that the money had been used to purchase that volleyball stadium down there before the auditor. And I went down there just to kind of like see the, you know, see the building and go inside, see if there were any classes, classrooms in there. Cause that's kind of the, one of the ways that they justified building it was that they were going to put offices inside that were going to be staffed by people who would help, um, you know, people in need, which is just kind of, crazy to think about people coming to the college campus to to get help at the volleyball stadium, but you know, whatever. I went around to kind of the surrounding community and just sort of talked to people that I could find. And I found one guy who I I think back on a lot because of the juxtaposition of the story that I was working on being like, here's this volleyball stadium that was paid for with $5 million in welfare money. And like right next door, not a mile away is a guy who told me that he hasn't seen his daughter in over five years. And she was taken away from him by CPS because he could not afford a roof. He could not afford rent. He wasn't homeless and he was applying for rental assistance from the local community action agency, which is like, that's where people know to go for help. And the funding wasn't there for him. There was no housing uh, support for him. And he lost his daughter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, for that. And that's, I'm glad you said that because I, I want people to know and really follow your reporting on this, that there are real people that are being affected by this. Somebody, me as somebody who follows the state closely, and I love Mississippi, but the state suffers a brain drain where I think it's over half of college students um, leave within two or three years after receiving their bachelor's, um, leave the state. You are from the state of Washington, and I want to say you went to school in Mississippi. Why did you stay? There's just so much to, there's so, there's too much to do here. There's too much opportunity for impact here. I also love it here. It's hard to live here, but the people who choose to are kind of drawn to each other. And I think that that builds a really special relationship too. I mean, I've met my favorite people in the world here and I, I, I struggle to quite put a name on you know, what about this place makes me feel like this, but I definitely feel like I belong here. And as far as brain drain goes, like, I think that we could do a better job. I mean, I I think that we could attract people here. I mean, when you think about the opportunities that are available to do something just kind of different and weird, you know, Mm -hmm. it's possible here. And there's, there's so much to do. There's so much to fix. And yeah, it's a really rich place. It's a rich environment here. Yeah, very rich environment for for sure. You are are certainly getting a lot of attention and awards and all of these things for this. And and I think about this. So Nicole Hannah Jones, who's uh, who's head up the sixteen nineteen project. I always tell people. So I followed her for a long time. She's doing work at ProPublica and other. She was on the segregation beat around school segregation for a long time. And I always tell people that for me, that was her work of, of Michael Jackson's off the wall album and 1619 project is like thriller. And I like <laughs> off the wall better than thriller. I might be the, I know that thriller was way more popular and I get it, but off the wall was better and more important. I would imagine that you are being pulled in a number of directions right now for stories or what have you. What what do you see as as next for for you? Yeah, um, I I mean that's really funny that you say that. I I do feel like I've found my lane, so I don't really expect my work to change very much here in the near future. I don't expect to like leave Mississippi anytime soon, or stop reporting in Mississippi anytime soon. I do think I'm going to, I mean, you, you even said earlier that this scandal is like far over. It's still unfolding. And hopefully I think the idea is that I'll try to take this story to some different platforms, get it kind of in front of a different audience that may not have seen it yet. And I think that there are some things that I still have to say about all of this that I haven't quite articulated that maybe is um, best done in, you know, some other medium, some other creative medium. So I think that it's ripe for that kind of treatment. And that's sort of what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever you come up with. And I, I will I will put in a, a plug here that I think that that the historical connections of, of those things that happen in Reconstruction and with the Sovereignty Commission and what have you, 
if certainly those institutions or agencies don't exist anymore, the, the attitudes are still very, very prevalent. And I don't think you can separate Jackson's water crisis or House Bill 1020 or any of that from the the TANF scandal. I know they're different things, but it is an orchestra with different sections. I mean, like the this is the, yeah. the TANF is the oboes and the well, I don't want to I don't want to dis oboe players, so I'll stop with that that uh, that 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 analogy. So we'll be looking forward to that. What does it mean to live well? I think that anything I say might sound a little like unoriginal, but I in like most recently have been thinking a lot about living authentically and really leaning into, you know, you have to be confident to live authentically, but it, there's a sort of freedom in that. And, and that's kind of where I'm, I'm trying to get to, I think. Yeah, no, no, listen, that that's living. It's easy to say living authentically is it's like something. Oh, yeah, just do it. But no, it, it takes more, uh, a little more than that. What the, the nature of of investigative journalism has to do. You've got to be really dogged and sort of determined in that. And clearly you have it because I'm sure like you didn't ask the state, hey, can I have Governor Bryant's text messages? And they say, oh, sure. Well, you want it in a zip file or you want to come down and pick it up? I'm sure that's not how it happened. Where did you develop sort of that that trait? Did, is it something that was innate in you or through your training or, or what? Yeah, I think that persistence is a quality that has gotten me pretty far, even where you know, I might be lacking in some other ways, at least I'm persistent. And that I think I've, I've had for a long time. I think that part of the, the way that they challenge people who are trying to ask questions and think differently about things in this state is by making people feel like they don't know what they're talking about, you know, essentially gaslighting. And I certainly experienced that. And I think that that's part of the whole living authentically piece and being confident is like being confident enough to just plow right through that and say, you know, well, no, I actually, that doesn't make sense. Let me, let's revisit that and tell, you know, tell me in a way that makes sense, you know, why you can't use this money to, you know, train people to get better jobs or, you know, whatever it is. Um, There's common sense there, you know, and so that's what I've tried to lean into. Yep. And is in the back channel, is that a an ongoing sort of vehicle for you to do reporting? And so that's where people can go and get updated. Is that right? What? Yeah, that was the series that we published in 2022. And I think we're still kind of filling in the stories that we're working on now to that. And I think that there's certainly going to be follow ups to, to that story. I mean, that is the story about what the feds are doing now. All right. OK, thank you for that. And we we always close with a, a musical question. Now, you are from the state of Washington and the state of Washington, uh, musically, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Jimi Hendrix is uh, was from Seattle. Uh, I mean, you could go on and on. Foo Fighters. I mean, state of Washington got a rich musical contribution to America's music, as does the state of Mississippi. <laughs> right, BB I mean, King, Muddy Waters, Leontine Price, or what have you. If you could only program a concert with musicians from one state, 
which one would you choose and why? It's, so this is this is where. So you ask tough questions to people all the time. So now I get to ask the question. If you could just so you yes. have to say, I'm programming the concert for the Americas, and I'm going to pick musicians, but from either the state of Washington or the state of Mississippi. That's so hard. I mean, it would have to be Mississippi. Okay. All right. Because of the music, because of the, you know, the style of music. But I mean, I love my, my alternative rock from Seattle, but it would have to be Mississippi. You know, it's funny you ask that. I, I'm actually going to Washington in a couple months for Brandy Carlisle, who lives in Washington. Yeah, Brandy Carlisle. And right. she's playing with Joni Mitchell. Oh, wow. So oh, wow. If Canada can be kind of thought of as, you know, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so listen, I think that's uh, your answer is correct because you you actually don't get to Washington's rich musical contributions without the blues musicians. So I think you sort of brought it all home. And so you can go back to back home and and people not say, well, Anna, why didn't you stand up for us uh, (laughs) there? So I think that's that. Listen, I want to thank you again for coming on our show. I know your time is valuable, and I actually want to give you as much time back so you can go find some more money in uh, places for that uh, sources of abuse and what have you. We really appreciate you, and thank you for all the reporting you're doing, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. I've actually got a big story coming out tomorrow on Medicaid, so if that's of interest. And no. there's a component. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. What's what's the what's the overall what's the summary of, of it? Well, that's a, it's a hard thing to summarize, but um, it's a particular program in Medicaid that provides services to folks with intellectual and de- developmental disabilities, and they're essentially not getting the care that they need. But money is still flying out of the door of Medicaid, paying for these services. So the question is, are these services actually being delivered, and how much fraud is occurring? Because there is at least one instance that we found. All right. Well, we we will be looking for it. And thank you again, Anna Wolf. And for everyone else, thank you for joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. Bye. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash parlay in all blue remember to like the show leave a review and share it it helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us if you have questions comments or show ideas please email us at mark at the parlay in all blue.com finally remember to follow us on social media and thanks be well and we out